1: From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is, wait, wait, don't tell me, the NPR news quiz. I've come to your land from far away to create a new country. I'm a pilgrim, Bill Curtis. And here is your host at the Studebaker Theater at the Fine Arts Building in downtown Chicago, Illinois. It's Peter Sagal.
2: Thank you, Bill. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. We have made it to Thanksgiving where we take as much time as we need to pause and be thankful for everything that's happened in the past year. And we're done.
1: With all the time we've got left. Why not revisit some of our favorite interviews and panelist questions from the past few months? Personally, I am grateful for the three weeks I was able to take off
2: from this job during the summer so I could spend some precious time with my family having COVID.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and while Peter was away, guest host Tom Papa, interviewed star of theater, film and TV, Nathan Lane.
3: And now the game where stars prove they're not actually just like us. If award shows had all-stars, Nathan Lane would be the first pick every year. The legendary actor has been nominated for six Tonys, seven Emmys, two Golden Globes, and probably an ESPY at some point. He's now nominated for yet another Emmy for his role in Only Murders in the Building. The second season is out now. Nathan Lane, welcome to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you.
3: Well, Nathan, you are the most nominated guest actor in Emmy history. Are you excited for the seventh ceremony, and will you get to attend?
4: Well, you know what they do? They, they give out the guest actor categories at the Creative Arts Emmy, which right. is uh, its held in a warehouse somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and,
5: the So,
4: So they usually... And tell you not to go to the Creative Arts Emmys and, and just sort of wait and see if you win. And then, if you win, they allow you to go to the Big Boy Nighttime Emmys <laughs> and present there.
3: And have you gone before? And,
4: well, I went the very first time,
6: <laughs> right? And,
4: and then, and then uh, I, I I I learned that you uh, not to go to them anymore. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so when you went, did you did you? <laughs> and treat- I
4: was right because I haven't won, <laughs> oh. even though I made any history. <laughs> <I never laughs> <had it>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um, you're so iconic now. I can imagine if people are just like, how are we going to make this better? Just get Nathan Lane. Uh, but you worked really oh. hard for a lot of years. And I saw in your history, which I did not know, you worked a number of odd jobs when you uh, started looking for acting work in the early 80s. Is it true you were a singing telegram? Yes. Yes. When
4: I, I, I moved to New York in, in the late 70s. And, and, yes, I, 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 I delivered singing telegrams, and you would, you would uh, put on a, a, a tuxedo and a little felt top hat, and, and you would go to offices or people's homes, and... and Usually to a, a public domain. I don't know why it had to be a public domain talk. Like, who was checking about what <laughs> to this. I don't know, but you would to like to the tune of the William Tell Overture. She was saying, you know, it's your, it's your day, it's your You're it's here, so we're sending you a musical here. Yeah,
5: well... <laughs> and then, and he, Nowadays, now it's such a lost art. Nowadays, people just go door to door doing singing text messages
3: <laughs> to the William Teller just LOL, 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 Nathan, was it, ever, well, was it ever poorly received when you, when you got there and, and finished your song and tipped your oh, top hat? People, if you go to
4: someone's office and, and, ha- and you have to sing to them, they, they hate that. <laughs> they, they really hate that. Uh, it, it, yeah, no. It, it, it's always a little—it's embarrassing for them and embarrassing for me. And and, and, uh, and then they, I, you know, they rarely would tip
3: it. And you just stand there with the top hat in front of them, <laughs> and sad and yeah. desperate, like you're at the Schmemies during the day. <laughs> like, what's twenty
5: percent of a song? <laughs> <laughs> you know who
4: I—I I, I had to sing uh, to Sam Watterson this is how long ago this was. Young Sam Waterston. It was his birthday, and I sang for him. And he, he, I could see the, I could see the pity in his eyes. Oh. <laughs> he, he, he realized I was a struggling actor, and he gave me a very nice tip. And I, so I, I'll, I only sing very fondly of Sam Waterston.
3: Oh, that's yeah, great. That's, right. that's great. And then you, you, you really really—I mean—you're nominated for this guest role, and you're so good in Only Murders in the Building, mm. it is.
4: All oh, thanks.
3: And it's very intriguing because it, it's who done it, and it and it pulls you in. And are do they make you sign anything? Are you not allowed to give away secrets when they when it's this kind no, of a thing?
4: No. No. What do you want to know?
3: <laughs> <laughs> He's just a guest.
4: I know who killed Bunny. <laughs> um, no, it, it, yeah, it, it's a, a really a tribute to those writers. Uh, it's, it's a very delicate ballad, and and it, they really pull it off.
3: It really is. I have to say, I, I mean, you're amazing. The whole cast is amazing. But the thing that really strikes me as a, as a New Yorker is the size of everyone's apartments. <laughs> <laughs> I just drool. We watch it, and I'm trying to figure out who's murdering who, and my wife is like, seriously, how much a month?
1: <laughs> they, sh-
3: they should call it any openings in the building. <laughs> All right, Nathan Lane, we've asked you here to play a game that we're calling... Famous Nathan, meet Nathan's famous. (laughs) You are a famous Nathan, so we thought we'd ask you about Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest. The annual tradition and the grossest part of the 4th of July.
4: Wow. You know, know, I was hoping...
3: (laughs) answer two out of three questions right and you'll win a prize for one of our listeners Bill who is Nathan Lane playing for
1: Ian Walsh of Boston Massachusetts Mm. all right Nathan here is your first question
3: Joey Chestnut has won the Nathan's hot dog eating contest 15 times This year's win was extra impressive, as he not only ate 63 hot dogs in 10 minutes, but also did what? A, a backflip after every 10 hot dogs. B, ate his hot dogs with spicy mustard as an extra handicap. (laughs) Or C, put a protester who stormed the event in a chokehold and shoved him off the stage in between hot dogs 17 and 18. (laughs)
4: Well, uh, is, is Joey Chestnut still with us? Is he living? <laughs> he is. Um, he is. I believe it's, he stopped a protester with a soap yes, opera. there we <laughs> go.
3: <laughs> That's right. C, he did double duty as a bouncer, and he still beat the runner-up by 15 hot dogs. Jeez. He is truly a freak of nature. <laughs> Joey Chestnut. On the Sopranos. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here's your next question. Joey Chestnut may be the winningest champion, but he's not the only notable one. There's also Joe Baldini and Paul Siderman, who were co-winners in 1980. Despite doing what? A. Co-winning a potato salad eating contest an hour earlier. (laughs) B. Both getting stung by bees during the competition, <laughs> or C, only eating nine hot dogs each. I believe they were stung by bees and kept eating. No, the answer is C. In the oh, 80s. Get <laughs> <laughs> it's only eight, nine. Yep, they only ate nine hot dogs. It was a different time. In the 80s, a hot dog a minute was good enough to win. If you're asking what changed, we're not sure, but it might have something to do with the fact that the prize these guys got for winning was, quote, two trophies and two yellow plastic bags. (laughs) To puke into, I imagine. (laughs) All right, here's your last question. Before the hot dog eating contest started, Nathan's needed other ways to drum up publicity. So in the 50s, they paid to have what placed next to their restaurant? A, the first ever Wienermobile. B, a 70-ton whale carcass. (laughs) C, a fake McDonald's, which they intentionally kept filthy. (laughs) Uh. Uh,
4: uh, what was the first one again?
3: I wouldn't pay attention to that one. <laughs>
4: Tom, why are you
3: hosting Jeopardy? I, I think because that show gives away money.
4: <laughs> All right, I'm going with the, the whale
3: carcass. You're right. Wow. wow. The answer is B. It may have worked too, but the weather was so hot that the carcass started to rot in the sun, driving away customers. (laughs) What did they think was going to happen?
1: Bill, how did Nathan Lane do on our quiz? Nathan, this may surprise you, but two out of three in this game win.
3: You are a winner. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful.
2: When we come back, we can't solve all of your problems, but our bluff game will solve one small one. That's when we come back with more Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR.
0: Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The World of Solar Geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast.
6: Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture and podcasts are ready when you want them in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
1: From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Studebaker Theater and Fine Arts Building, downtown Chicago, Illinois, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill.
2: Thank you, everybody. It is Thanksgiving week, and even though the supply chain issues of last year seem to be finally solved, we thought we could still bring you some extra things to be thankful for.
1: We've had appetizers, and now let's start the entrees. First, a classic Bluff the Listener game from when we went to San Francisco in May with panelists Adam Burke, Paula Poundstone, and Maz Jobrani.
5: Oh my goodness, hi there Peter, this is Sydney Rogers, aka Miss Barbecue. Hello Miss Barbecue, <laughs> how's by you? I'm doing amazing, I'm from LA, but I'm down in San Diego for a
2: conference. A conference? What kind of conference, may I ask? Oh, oh for the California Workforce
5: Association Conference. I work for Trans Can Work. I'm the Education and Trains Manager, and I'm also a professional drag queen. Well that's cool! <laughs>
2: Do you? Yes, I've been in drag since 1992. Well, uh, I know the drag scene is competitive, as the saying goes, you got to have a gimmick. So, do you have a gimmick? Oh my goodness, I think my gimmick is fierce, black, and keeping it real. That's a good gimmick. That's a good gimmick. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Sydney. You're going to play you. our game in which you must try to tell truth from fiction. Bill, what is Sydney's topic? Solving the big problems. We have the most powerful science and technology in the world, but we still can't seem to stop climate change, endless words, or people who don't know how to thread their tweets. But this week, somebody actually finally fixed something that we needed fixed. Our panelists are going to tell you about it. Pick the one who's telling the truth. You'll win the weight waiter of your choice in your voicemail. You ready to play? Yes, I am so ready. I am so happy to
8: hear it. Here we go. Here, first up, Adam Burke. Ah, the humble burrito. Some say it was invented in Mexico in the late 19th century. Others say it was created by a Juarez street vendor in the 1940s. Still others say the ancient Egyptians invented it back when they were addicted to just wrapping stuff. (laughs) There are even those that contend the burrito did not reach its true apotheosis until the invention of the Mission-style burrito right here in San Francisco in the 1960s and 70s, but who would say that but a feckless panderer trying to curry favor with a local audience. (laughs) (laughs) But there's one thing that we can all agree upon, is their fundamental design flaw, that they are so full of meaty, starchy goodness that they often burst forth from their flowery or corny winding sheet, spilling their cheesy cargo all over you like an overwhelmed frat boy his first night out in the mission. (laughs) But fear not, for a stalwart band of Bothans at Baltimore's John Hopkins University had tackled and possibly solved the issue of structural snack integrity by creating edible adhesive tape that will fasten your beloved parcel shut like the wax seal on a calorific royal proclamation. Putatively called tasty tape, the food safe suture is patent pending. So, hopefully, in the near future, we can chow down on our favorite doughy meat sack without fear of a Tex Mex explosion.
1: <laughs>
8: burrito tape. Edible tape to hold your burrito
2: together. Your next story of a problem solved comes from Maz Jobrani.
1: Anyone who's ever had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night knows it can be a precarious endeavor.
3: Well, designed for people who have a long walk to the bathroom down a dark hallway, Swedish engineers at home furnishing giant IKEA have come up with a mattress that senses when you get up to urinate and proceeds to illuminate a dimly lit path of night lights that you follow from your bed to the toilet where the toilet seat is also lit. <laughs> the invention known as the pee landing came to Anders Andersson when he was flying in the LaGuardia one night. I looked out into the pitch-dark black night, (laughs) and as we approached the airport, I saw the landing strip lights, thinking, if those
2: lights can help a plane hit its target, they can help me hit my target too. (laughs) (laughs) The P-Landing, an automatic system that lights your way to the safety of the toilet in the middle of the night. Your last story of a thorn removed from all of our sides comes from Paula Poundstone.
6: A team of University of Helsinki graduate students took on one of life's greatest challenges. How do you open clear plastic clamshell packaging without damaging the product within or without losing a limb? (laughs) And they won. Their device, informally called the clamshell cracker, subjects the package to specially calibrated vibrations and radiation so that after only an hour inside, the plastic is soft enough to be easily manipulated. The hard part wasn't coming up with the process to weaken the polymers so the package would open easily. The problem was making it safe for home use, says team member Yargo Alali. So it has to be a little bigger than a commercial refrigerator, but we think it's worth it. (laughs) Parent Karen Miller explains, my daughter actually outgrows toys before I can get them out of the package. (laughs) So what, the machine is big, we'll decorate it. My wife's career as a surgeon was cut short by nerve damage she received while opening the plastic packaging containing a laser pointer for our cat, says Charlie Roop. We're getting this machine. Yeah, it's big. We'll put it in my son's room. He can sleep on the couch. (laughs) All right. One of these problems has been
2: solved. Is it the problem of your burrito opening and spilling everywhere solved with new burrito tape? Is the problem not being able to find the bathroom accurately and quickly enough in the middle of the night solved by the P-Landing, automatic lighting system, or the problem of not being able to open those damned clamshell packages solved by the new large but efficient machine invented in Helsinki?
5: Oh my goodness, I've tried to eat a burrito in the movie theater. Never do that.
2: No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's not
5: very smart. And the clamshell thing, I'm allergic to shellfish. So I'm going to go with the burrito <laughs> cake because now I can go to the movie theater and eat a burrito in peace.
2: Well, Sydney, I really like the way your mind works. To find out if you're right, we spoke to one of the real problem solvers.
6: Tasty Tape allows you to keep your burrito wrapper or any food like
2: that securely yes. closed during cooking and consumption. That was Erin Walsh. She is a recent graduate from Johns Hopkins University and one of the developers of Tasty Tape. We anticipate a statue of her in the mission any day now. <laughs> Congratulations, Sydney! You got it right. You earned a point for Adam. You've won our prize: the voice yes. of your choice and your voicemail. Thank you so much for playing with us today. Enjoy that conference. Thank you. Thank you so much, y'all. Take care, Sydney. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.
1: (laughs) Back in July of this year, when Peter decided he'd rather spend some more time with the virus than us, (laughs) we got over the snub by inviting on Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief of Pitchfork, to talk independent music with guest host Tom Papa. Thank you so much for
3: being here. It's really nice to meet you. So happy to be here. Yeah, this is very exciting. So how did you get into music journalism? Was it, what was your relationship with, uh, with music when you were a kid?
7: So, I grew up in a house full of music, Mm -hmm. um, the kind of house where you wake up to your mom blasting music and that really sets the tone for what her mood is for the day. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, if it was something really like if it was Shaka Khan or Tina Turner, we were gonna, you know, it's gonna be a great day. (laughs) Um, If it was something sad, I pretended I was asleep for another hour.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, and when you were a little kid, just listening to the music, were you rating things?
7: Yeah, it was slowly, you know, this is four tomatoes out of five, <laughs> just taking household objects and, and starting to rate things, yeah.
3: So everybody talks, and I know you get this question a lot, mm-hmm. everybody talks about the rankings of, of mm-hmm. albums and songs on Pitchfork. Uh, is there a difference between like an 8.2 and an 8.6?
7: <laughs> yeah, I'm not so different from my mother in that it's affected by my mood that day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but oh, that's,
3: that's so upsetting. <laughs> there's, a, there's a band out there just trying their best in their garage. Yeah. They finally I know, get I haven't it all had my done. Two
7: coffees yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it can right. be extremely arbitrary to you, but if you care, you really care.
3: Right. It yeah. really, really means really something. care. Yeah. And do you get a lot of pushback? Do people go crazy and,
7: how could you rank this, this? Yeah. It,
3: does that happen a lot?
7: It happens all the time. It does. It happens all the time.
3: Where the fans get angry.
7: The fans get really,
8: really angry. And, and do they show off. up with, I don't know, some kind of implement? Mm-hmm. I can't think mm-hmm. of what it
6: would be. Mm-hmm. Um... <laughs> <laughs> shovels Shovel, shovels
8: shovels
3: <laughs> and are you still a passionate fan like do you still really love music like if you want to relax yeah. and just enjoy yourself yeah. do you does music even do it for you anymore cuz you're working and you're every single day or do you just like listen to the microwave go
7: <laughs> I it really depends on my mood but I can't imagine a day without listening to music no yeah, yeah.
3: Do you have any guilty pleasures? Anything that you listen to that would surprise people?
7: I just got into an argument with, with one of our editors on staff about the album Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette, which I say is very good.
3: You know, it's and... so funny because so you're so cool. I immediately wanted to blurt out, I love that album, but I was like, what if it's not? <laughs> 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 That's great.
7: I'm giving you permission. It's, it's a I great
3: love that album. album. Um, and at its time, when she came out, I mean, it was all grunge, and then she comes out and she,
7: and a song about Uncle Joey. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Wait, was it really about Uncle Joey?
7: Oh, for sure. It was, it was in Uncle the theater. Joey. No, you ought to know.
8: You ought to know. Yeah. Yeah, but I know. Yeah. 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 He's talking about a very specific line. Which all you can't of a yeah. you're because talking
6: like the- different language. <laughs>
8: Paula, um,
3: just just give me five minutes. The cool kids are
6: talking.
3: Yeah. I'll I'll bring you into it, Paula. Have you heard of the song Chattanooga Choo Choo? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a good question, though, because, uh, you know, I'm a dad of two teenage girls, and I'm so aware of not being... Present and like when you're Mm. younger, what happens to us when you're young? Music finds you, and then you get to a certain age and hairline, and you have to (laughs) you have to go find the music. Uh It's no longer a part of your world, and you don't even have and you have no reference of whether it's cool or not. What happens to us? And has it happened to you ever?
7: Yeah, I think especially in the last couple of years, people tend to return to things that feel familiar and comfortable, and that's the stuff that you listen to when you were younger and, right. and our brains are shaped that way too I mean just mechanically you remember things you learn things faster when you're younger you associate emotions and like sensory memory to things when you were younger and then when you get old you're just like life is bad
8: <laughs> <laughs> let's return to the good old days <laughs> what, what pitchfork rating would life get Oh, uh, right now? Yeah. Uh,
7: hovering around at 4.2. <laughs>
8: <laughs> well,
3: I have to say, um, I don't feel cooler since you've been here. <laughs> um, I feel like I I'd still need to know a lot more. What, give me one band that I could um, put on while I'm with my daughters uh-huh. that they won't give me an eye roll. Because a lot of times I'll throw something out and be like, this is cool, yeah. and it, it's, it's not been cool for a while.
7: I think you should listen, I met your daughter, I think you should listen to Doja Cat.
3: Doja Cat. Yeah. Everyone loves Doja Cat. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
6: Doja Cat. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I love Doja Cat. They did, who let the dogs out, didn't they?
3: (laughs) They did a remix of Chattanooga Choo Choo. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Pooja Patel, we've asked you here today to play a game that we're calling. Put down the pitchfork. It's time oh, to okay. pitch first. You know all about pitchfork, but what do you know about the hallowed baseball tradition, the ceremonial first pitch? Answer two of the three questions correctly, and you'll win our prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Pooja Patel playing
1: for? Joe Edison of San Francisco, California. All right. Ready? I'm ready. All right. Here's your
3: first question. Everyone is familiar with the president throwing out the first ball on opening day. What you might not know is he used to do this from the stands. And there was a second part of the tradition. What? A, he'd throw the ball to his vice president, who could play any position he wanted in the first inning. (laughs) B, he'd throw the ball to the director of the Smithsonian, who would immediately put it on display. Or C, he'd just throw the ball out on the field, where all the players would fight over it, like bridesmaids (laughs) going for the bouquet.
7: I'm going to say
3: B. B. B, that he'd throw the ball to the director of the Smithsonian, who would immediately put it on display. This
7: sounds, all of these sound insane. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so you're telling me C. I am contractually bound not to
3: tell you anything. But, yes, C. C. <laughs> He would just chuck it out there, and whoever ended up with it got to keep it. Wow. Yeah, and apparently people went pretty crazy for it. All right, here's your next question. To honor the 150th anniversary of baseball coming to Japan, the New York Mets invited the Japanese ambassador to throw out the first pitch, but he never got to do it. Why? A. A seagull with a hot dog landed on the mound and chased away anyone who came near. B. Mets pitcher Max Scherzer went out onto the mound to warm up and wouldn't get off to let the ceremony happen. Or C, the ambassador was so excited to see the big globe and towers from the end of Men in Black in the park across the street that he was an hour late to the game.
7: See, both of those are viable options. Mm -hmm, mm B? You're right. It's B. (laughs)
3: Apparently, Max Scherzer has a routine and sticks to it no matter what country he insults. <laughs> Here's your last question. Not all first pitches go as planned. Red Sox superfan Jordan Leandra fired the ball from the mound, but unfortunately, it didn't reach the catcher's mitt. What did he hit? A. his own foot, breaking 5 bones. <laughs> B. The groin of a photographer standing 10 feet behind home plate. (laughs) C. The face of the Red Sox manager who is standing in the dugout.
7: Dang, I should know this. I'm going to say B.
3: (laughs) You're going to say B. You're right. The groin of a photographer standing 10 feet behind home plate. Couldn't have thrown it any better if he tried. Bill, how did Pooja do on our quiz? Three home runs! Wow. <laughs> Congratulations, you did yeah. very well. It's really nice to meet you.
2: Coming up, the man who invented graffiti tagging. Think about it, somebody had to. The first one didn't spray itself. That's when we come back with more Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR.
3: I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln?
4: Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, uh, no, I just thought of
9: it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
10: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up.
0: Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one.
7: Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity
0: can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Why is everyone
5: so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media?
1: From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is, wait, wait, don't tell me, the NPR news quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Studebaker Theater in downtown Chicago, Peter Sagal.
2: Thank you, Bill. This week, we are doing our annual ritual of coming up with reasons why, despite everything, we really should be thankful. Yeah, there's that and the other thing and you know that's coming straight down the pike but on the other hand boy we
1: had some good times in this radio show didn't we well for example in july we went to philadelphia and interviewed a local hero daryl mccray known as cornbread the man who is credited with inventing modern graffiti
9: i'm a credit for being um the inventor of graffiti such is not the case Graffiti has always been this since the beginning of time. Right, like the caveman. Sure, I am the world's first modern-day graffiti artist. Okay, I wrote my name on the walls for the sole purpose of establishing a reputation.
2: Is that so, called tagging?
9: Yes, that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a new term. Right. Okay. So you so you no,
2: more or less you more or less invented tagging. Well, is, when he was doing it, it was just called cornbreading. He was the first guy. I don't know. Why did the name it after him? Well, so so, so part of your legend that we heard about as soon as you mentioned your name to people in Philadelphia is some of the places and things that you tagged with your name including if I'm not mistaken an elephant I I had to do it (laughs) 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 and I I want to assure our listeners especially the elephant was fine but tell me what happened
9: well I start walking bus routes and I'm going to work one day I always buy a newspaper so I can read while I ride On the front page of the newspapers, is shot to death. Who else could this be? Yeah. (laughs) It's on page three. And it read, the fantastic career of Philadelphia best-known graffiti artist came to a Marlon and sunny outside a hotel and bar. I'm reading about my own death. Right. Well, this became a prescription for disaster. See, I knew I had to do something bizarre.
2: I, I'm getting the idea. So in order to prove to the world that you were still out there, you had to do something bigger than you'd ever done before. You know what I did. Right. You know so did. you broke into the Philadelphia Zoo. I didn't zoo. break into the zoo. <laughs> no. <tell me laughs> what right, I'm, uh, what? Peter, you come on, <laughs> man. Sorry.
9: I tamped to the back of the zoo, and I came over the fence. <laughs> I came down to the closing where was at. I hopped into the pit. I walked up to him. I took the spray can off, he turns around,
5: (laughs) he's like, this must be the biggest bag of peanuts I've ever heard. Right, right, right.
9: Elephant turns around and looks at you. I walks to him, I write, corn, bread, lives. Round to the other side, corn, bread, lives. Well, yeah. I was kind of disgusted because I went through all that to do something within 60 seconds. When I came out the pit, the entire zoo was at my disposal. Right. I just bombed the whole zoo out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Oh, I bet.
9: This, I just, so so uh, the elephant was somebody, cool with this. Somebody. Yeah. Was the elephant cool? The, the elephant el- was cool with this, though. Yes.
1: Consent. Yes. yes. Yeah.
9: yes.
2: Yeah. Basically, this is the Philadelphia version of Charlotte's Web.
9: Someone <laughs> else was in that zoo.
2: Somebody else. Yes.
9: And seeing what I did. Yeah. And called the police. Yeah. By the time I came out the zoo, yeah. come to the term stop. Choo-choo. Don't run. Put your hands on top of your head. Take me to the police station. And all this time, I'm tired because I was up half the night. I'm sleeping. We're trying to rest. And every five minutes. The cops have come to t- what $20 cornbread? I said, here, what's up? Give me your autograph, kid. <laughs> <laughs>
2: this was all day long. I, so, <clears throat> I, I, I was about to say I have a feeling that's not true. I know we could be here all day, and you would have even more amazing stories. Yes. But yes. sadly, we don't have all day, and we have business to do. So. Yes. Cornbread. Daryl, we have asked you here to play a game we're calling Tag. You're it. So you're an expert, obviously a pioneer in one kind of tagging. We thought we'd ask you three questions about the game of tag. Answer two of them correctly. You'll win our prize. One of our listeners the voice of their choice in their voicemail. Perhaps at this point yours. Bill, who is Cornbread playing
1: for? Dan Foley of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All right. Ready to do this? Here's your first question. Of course,
2: as you can might imagine, there is in this world a professional tag league. They played the sport professionally. It's called World Chase Tag. The idea is you have a small arena, obstacles, a chaser tries to tag an evader in a set period of time. Which of these is an official term used in that sport? A, the wounded rabbit in which the person chasing fakes an injury, drawing the evader to come help, and then he tags him. B, the Benny Hill, in which the chaser chases the evader around and around, an obstacle to no effect, like that old comedy program. Or C, the existential crisis, in which either player suddenly realizes that playing tag is ridiculous for grown adults. C. So you can do it for C. It's <laughs> like an example term. It's not
5: wrong. I know, it's existential yeah. crisis. It's yeah. a good guess, but
2: in fact, the answer is the Benny Hill. That is a term <laughs> oh they use in professional tag. Oh, yeah. Apparently, it's a mistake rookies make. This is not a problem. Cornbread, you got two more. Perhaps you're bored by that kind of professional tag. You want something more exciting, in which case, you can enjoy which of these? A, Catch Me If You Can. That's a Croatian dating show in which people compete for the right to date someone by chasing them through a house. B, Global Tag, an amateur league in which the playing field is the entire planet and rounds often take years to complete. Or C, Archery Tag, in which instead of tagging each other, players shoot arrows at each other.
9: I'll go with A.
2: You can it with oh. A. I'm afraid it was uh, C, Archery Tag. Oh, God. What? It's, it's called Archery Tag. They're padded arrows. And I got to tell you the truth. I watched it on video, and it looks like
1: a lot of fun. Right. You, did, you didn't mention they were padded arrows. Yeah, that's true. That's a technicality. Because, you know, all right. that takes all the fun out of it. It does, really.
2: <laughs> Cornbread tags the arrow as it flies by. <laughs> 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 all right, here's your last question. The multimillionaire Andrew Mellon and his brother Richard engaged in a decades-long tag war with each other which finally ended when which of these happened? A, Richard, trying to escape Andrew's tag, leapt into the Susquehanna River and was never seen again. B, on his deathbed, Richard called Andrew over and whispered, last tag, into his ear, and then immediately died. Or C, Andrew had himself encased in a giant rubber ball so he could never be tagged again. B. You can go for B. On his deathbed, Richard called Andrew over and said, last tag, gotcha, and died. You're right. That's what happened. Thanks, thanks,
1: thanks.
2: Bill, how did Daryl Cornbread McRae do on our quiz?
1: Well, he got one right, and uh, just short of uh, being a full winner in our game, but we do know that every time you go in public and see the word cornbread, you'll know he's a winner. Yeah. <laughs> cornbread I, I have to ask. I have to ask one thing. When we walk out of here tonight, are we going to see cornbread on the wall backstage? <laughs> no. No, no Alonzo, it. it's already on the back. It's already, oh my God! It's already been tagged. You can
2: see Daryl Cornbread McRae's artwork online at paradigmarts.org and artsy.net. You can see it in person over at the Paradigm Gallery and Studio in Philadelphia. Daryl McCrae, thank you so much for joining us. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Give it up for Cornbread.
8: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
6: The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today.
2: Finally, we are all grateful around here that we are no longer doing the show on Zoom anymore, even though we often had some pretty great virtual visits with fascinating people.
1: In January, guest host Nagid Farsad interviewed Jeremy Harris, the playwright, whose slave play was the talk of Broadway and who wrote the film Zola, perhaps the first movie to be adapted from a Twitter thread. Hi, Nagid. How are you?
0: Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. I just saw Zola. It was so good. I really love this movie. And what's crazy to me about it is that it's based on a Twitter thread, as I mentioned. Um, Can you tell us about this particular Twitter thread and what made it seem like it could be a good movie?
10: Well, I mean... Honestly, what's wild is that it was a Twitter thread before threading was possible on Twitter. You know, um, this young, this 19-year-old Black woman, like, told a story on Twitter that stopped the internet for an entire day back in 2015. And, like, thousands thousands and thousands of people were hanging onto her every word. And it was almost like when, when, um, when Dickens would write his periodicals where we're like, you know, one, <laughs> one, come out one day. Except we got them all over a night, right? So we we get one bit of the story and we had to wait five minutes for Twitter to load because mm-hmm. um, he starts mm-hmm. to tweet with this iconic phrase. Like, it's one of the great first lines. For me, It it goes up there with, like, you know, uh, Moby Dick and Hamlet. But it's uh, – let me tell you the story why me and this B-word here fell out. (laughs) It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense.
0: Um, And then, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the movie without giving it away?
10: Oh, totally. Sorry. Did I just, like, go too much into into (laughs) process? No, no, that
0: was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah.
10: Well, the movie, um, I think simply put, it's a movie about a young Black woman who works at a Hooters-type establishment, who meets another young woman who is white, who um, they immediately bond over the fact that um, that they both are strippers. Um, and so after they spend one wild night out together, the young white woman calls her and asks her to go on a trip with her to Florida. And 14 hours later, they are in a car to Florida uh, on a 14-hour road trip that... Um, takes them to hell. Um, in more ways than one. I know that sounds really dark and scary. You might just be like, oh my God, I just want to go watch Tick, Tick, Boom and Smile. But like, (laughs) it's really funny. It's a really funny movie.
5: Jeremy, I mean, like you've written in so many mediums and and so successfully and wonderfully, but I think maybe your best writing I've ever seen was you finding an NPR appropriate way to tell the story of
10: Solo just now. (laughs) (laughs) I've had a lot of practice. I have an 11-year-old niece who has now become quite curious about what Uncle Jeremy is writing. And she's been very <laughs> frustrated because she can't see Slave Play. She couldn't see Zola. And so she's she's like, well can you just explain it to me like a preteen can. Mm. And so now I've learned how to talk about my work like for preteens. Not to say that NPR <laughs> audiences are preteen, but I do know that the that the co-writer of Zola, Janixa Bravo, has been listening to this program since she was a preteen. So <laughs> um, I, I, I'm i trying to make it for little for little Janixa.
0: Well, I want to also – I want to talk to you about Slave Play, which, by the way, I, I live in New York City. I mean, was the talk of the town. Like I mentioned it once – you know, it, it was nominated for so many Tonys.
10: And it lost them all. And
0: it lost That's them all. <laughs> That's even cooler.
10: That's <laughs> actually a cooler thing. To be nominated for 12 and to lose 12 It's like kind of a really punk act, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the, yo i feel like no claps is better than one clap you know what i'm saying mm, mm, <laughs> yes yes mm, that's no because that was what i told my mom at the end when like the last award of the night was best play along was like well baby maybe this is the one i was like mom that would be the worst thing i was like the worst <laughs> thing would be walking away with just this one so actually let's just vibe out on losing and then we did and i was like see <laughs> this is cool
0: I have a very important question to ask you, though, about Slave Play, which is that, is it true that Rihanna texted you while she was watching it?
10: Oh, that is very
5: true.
0: Did you text Rihanna back being like, please turn off your phone? And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why aren't you paying you know attention? What? This
5: better be intermission. <laughs> yeah. I, really,
10: I really hate to do this to my own self, but I guess, again, being a double Gemini, I can't help but get myself in trouble. But um, I actually um, caused a big rift in the theater community after Rihanna came and texted, because I said, I don't mind people texting during my show as long as they're texting about my show.
5: Ooh. I would love for that to happen in more plays, as long as it's Rihanna every time, just like at the music band, <laughs> like, do 77 trombones!
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: well, Jeremy O'Harris, we've asked you here to play a game we're calling...
1: You're to play right? These guys play wrong.
0: Ooh. <laughs> As Bill said, you're a very successful playwright, so we thought we'd ask you about people who play wrong, the athletes mm. who made some of the worst plays in sports history. Answer two out of three questions correctly, and you'll win our prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Jeremy O'Harris playing for?
1: James King of Madison, Wisconsin.
0: Okay. Here's your first question. Chicago Cubs outfielder Milton Bradley once made a slick catch of a fly ball, posed with it, and tossed the ball to a fan in the stands. One problem, though, what? Was it A, the fan was the owner of the team they were playing, the Minnesota Twins? Was it B, the fan was a 99-year-old woman who broke her wrist catching the ball? (gasps) Or was it C, there was only one out, the ball was still in play, and the runners on first and third both scored?
10: I'm going to say C, even though I feel like that might be for a different game.
0: You know what? That's absolutely correct. (laughs) Woo! You're basically a sports expert, as far as I know. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. Well, let's see how you do this next question. Brazilian soccer star Neymar did such a bad job faking an injury during a 2018 World Cup game that which of these things happened? Was it A, the referees gave the other team one free injury without worrying about getting a penalty? Was it B, the New York times interviewed acting teachers to explain why Neymar was so unconvincing or was it C, the referee wrote boo hoo on the yellow card that he gave to Neymar?
10: I, I'm gonna say
7: B.
0: That's right. The answer was B. This is crazy. Rihanna just texted me about how well you're doing <laughs> at
7: this game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeremy. Here, let's just let's see if you can keep this going. This is your last question. Dick Stewart was a first baseman who led the American League in RBI's in 1963, but he was such a terrible fielder that he earned which of the following nicknames? Was it A? Stone Fingers, B, Doctor Strange Glove, or C, The Ancient Mariner, because that poem begins It is an Ancient Mariner, and he stoppeth one of three.
10: I'm going to say A just because we haven't done an A yet.
0: Jeremy, you've done it again. They're all right. He was so bad at fielding that, true story, he once picked up a hot dog wrapper that was blowing towards him and the crowd gave him a standing ovation.
10: <laughs> I mean, literally,
1: that, that, this one was pure guess. Uh,
0: Bill, how did Jeremy do on our quiz?
1: Well, it's hard to get all three, but Jeremy... You got all three right. Oh,
0: my god. That's what I love to hear. Well, Jeremy O'Harris, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Jeremy O'Harris' newest movie, Zola, is available to stream now. Jeremy O'Harris, thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.
2: Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for our Reasons to be Thankful edition. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a production of NPR and WBEZ Chicago in association with Urgent Haircut Productions, Doug Berman, Benevolent Overlord. Philip Godica writes our limericks. Our public address announcer is Paul Friedman. Our intern is Vaishnavi Naidu. B.J. Liederman composed our theme. Our program is produced by Jennifer Mills, Miles Dornbos, and Lillian King. Our Peter, Peter pumpkin pie eater is Peter Gwynn. Our tour manager, that's Shana Donald. Technical direction is from Lorna White. Our business and ops manager is Colin Miller. Our production manager is Robert Newhouse. Our senior producer is Ian Chillog, and the executive producer, of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, is Mike Dand for. Thanks to everybody you heard on our show this week. That would mean all of our panelists, all our fabulous guests. Of course, Bill Curtis. Thanks to everybody here at the beautiful Studebaker Theater. Thanks to all of you for listening at home. I am Peter Sagal, and we will be back next week. This is NPR.
6: Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you,
7: I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.